Welcome to Trending in Education. Mike Palmer here. Very pleased to be joined today by James Nottingham, who's the founder of The Learning Pit, which we're going to talk more about. He's also the director of Challenging Learning. But before we get into any of that, I'd love to welcome James to the show. So James, welcome to Trending in Education. Thank you, Mike. It's delightful to join you. Yeah. Typically, when we have someone on for the first time, we like to get their uh, origin story. What got you to this point in your career? Doing a little bit of research coming in, I see that there's quite a bit to talk about, but I'd rather hear that in your own words. So how did you become who you are today in the world of learning? First and foremost, I'm a, a teacher and that's how I see myself. That's how I would describe myself. And I went into teaching because school did not work for me. I had such a bad experience. I think elementary school was pretty good. I went to a lot of different elementary schools because uh, I was in a military family and we moved and moved. Mm -hmm. But then my father left the military as I hit middle and high school age. And it was a pretty wretched experience. And I found it really what should we say, out of kilter with what was going on in life. And, mm. and this we're talking early 80s here, and a lot of it was, you remember those transparency films that the, the, yep. the teachers would write on, and they'd just have their notes, and they'd put it on the overhead projector, and you would copy those notes down and then put the next one and the next one and the next one. And it was stuff that it seemed to me that was just so out of date. Mm -hmm. And I felt as if this was not going to help me in the future. I was not going to go into the military, so I didn't need this stuff and right. uh, but I didn't know what I was going to do and that was the problem and I, I felt as if it was somewhat irrelevant and I don't think that was purely and simply teenage angst speaking <laughs> I think it was right. a lot of it was outdated yeah and I, I left school at the age of 16 with no qualifications I'd done really badly but then I thought now what do I do and a lot of my friends continued in education and I thought oh if they are I may as well yeah and it was one teacher who stood up for me and persuaded everyone to let me back in because mm -hmm. everyone else did not want to let me back in mm -hmm. and I kept going purely and simply because I just had no idea what I was going to do next but right. even then it was yeah this is appalling I I left school and bummed around, worked in a factory, worked on a pig farm, did various wow. things. And then yeah. some friends were going off to apartheid South Africa to do some anti-apartheid charity work. Mm. And I thought, why not? And off I went to, to do that with them. And wow. yeah. um, in fact, we were there in February 1990 outside Victor Vister prison when Mandela was released. So wow. it was exciting times. Mm -hmm. And we did lots of things. We worked with a women's cooperative, we worked with a men's hostel, and one thing we did was work in a school. And 500 kids in this squatter camp school, and just three teachers for 500 kids. Wow. But those kids rocked up, and they were in class sizes, as you can imagine, yeah. 150 kids, ranging from newborn babies being looked after by their siblings to 19, 20-year-olds taking a bit of time out yeah. to learn. And I found my calling, really. Mm. This was my, my niche. I, I thought I built rapport with these kids very quickly. Yeah. As I said to myself, I'm getting more from this 
then I'm giving to them. I had no training. I was wet behind the ears. I, I was a recent school leaver. What was I offering? Mm. So I was determined to to give back. And so I, I came back to the UK and decided to train to be a teacher. But then it turned out um, you have to have um, some grades for that. And I didn't have any grades. So now what do I do? Yeah. And uh, I, I got a job as a sports coach and a teacher's aide in a, a school for deaf children. Hmm. and loved every second of it Hmm. and then three years later I was able to get into teacher training based on my experience Hmm. and the first tutor I met there turned my idea of education upside down and Hmm. set me on the path that I'm still on today so it was the in a nutshell it was about I really felt that surely I can do a better job than the teachers who taught me wow yeah, that's profound. There's a lot of directions that we could go from that origin story, but but fast forwarding maybe to this idea of the learning pit, which is mm. uh, is also something that's been around for some time and it's reached some scale as well in terms of mm. folks who are adopting it. Can you give us some highlights around what the learning pit is? Yeah, as I went through teacher training, I, I reflected on that I was a much more resilient learner than a lot of my peers were and in fact the tutor who I briefly mentioned before he introduced me to philosophy for children and this idea of you challenge and you question you use somewhat of a Socratic method to get people thinking and learning how to learn rather than so much what to learn Mm -hmm. and it's that it was designed to be a, a counterbalance to a very content-laden curricula that you find around the world. Mm -hmm. And of the 50 people who started that course, only four of us finished. Wow. It's extraordinary. Mm -hmm. So many people dropped out because they thought, I'm not getting the facts. Mm -hmm. I'm not getting the exam notes that I can use to pass the test. Right. And I, I, I reflected on that and thought, why am I more resilient? Why am I more determined? And it wasn't like shout it from the rooftops. This was a very sort of emerging thought, probably sat in far too many pubs, I would say. But all, all, my emerging... best, all my best emerging thoughts happen at the pub, by the way. So, uh, so for you're, sure. you're, you're not Absolutely. alone. Yeah. Absolutely. The Enlightenment in Europe yeah. began in the pubs. It no was joke. not in the churches. It was in the pubs. That mm. it, and this is how we came out of the Dark Ages, reflecting. Yes, okay, so uh, a beer helps, but it's much more that social idea and that yeah. getting together and questioning mm-hmm. and challenging. So as I reflected on that, I went into teaching and I wanted to convince my students that you learn more when you step out of your comfort zone. When yes. you try things you've never tried before, you try the same thing, but you try it in a different way, or you ask questions, you investigate, you wonder. That's when you learn. It's not doing what you can already do. It's mm-hmm. doing the other things. And I wanted to convince them of that. And I wanted to share a bit of learning theory. And I tried various yeah. different approaches. I even got into, I said, Vygotsky called yes. it the zone of proximal development. I yeah, mean, yeah. the kids were just falling asleep. You lose the audience. Oh, with Vygotsky sure. is tough. Yeah. And then zone of proximal development. Yeah. If, yeah, 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 if they're yeah, still yeah. listening after that, you're doing something magical. You're juggling. Uh, you're doing something uh, entertaining. Really, really wasn't. So yeah, uh, yeah. I think it, uh, this does not work. So I tried lots of different ways to explain it. And process after process just fell flat 
And then one day I was drawing on the board this idea that you get worse before you get better, that mm -hmm. you step out of the known into the unknown. Mm -hmm. And that gives you that sense of wobble, the kind of wobble you feel yeah. when you learn to ride a, a bicycle. Right. It gives you that sense of confusion. I started talking about cognitive conflict or cognitive yeah. dissonance. Again, they started to yeah. fall asleep at that point. But <laughs> as I drew this image on the board, someone said, oh, it looks like a bit of a pit. Now, mm. we, we, this was in a, a coal mine or rather ex-coal mining town. So maybe that had influenced them. But we're not talking coal pit here. Right. Uh, we just said, that's it. That's the learning pit. And mm. it built from there. And the kids enjoyed saying, I'm in the learning pit. Yeah. Instead of saying, I'm confused, I'm stuck, I don't right. get it. They would say, right. I'm in the learning pit. And it became mm -hmm. that sort of, what shall we say? It was a euphemism for being confused. And then that seemed to work. Some of my colleagues got into the language. The, the parents of the kids would come along and say, what's going on? What is this about? And I'd explain mm -hmm. it a bit more. And they themselves had failed at school and they were saying, if only we'd had this, maybe the teacher would have understood me a bit more because I spent my life in that learning thing, that <laughs> yeah, kind of yeah. thing that they said. And it just spoke to them. And then in 1999, the BBC came to make a school's programme, spent a day and a half in the school filming me working with the kids about mm -hmm. the learning pit. Mm -hmm. And uh, they broadcast it a few months later, lots of schools in the northeast of England, who knew where I was based, yeah. got in touch and mm -hmm. asked me to go work with them. Yeah. And it built and built from there. Yeah. And I started sharing it with at teacher conferences. Mm -hmm. And now, today, you, you do a search online, you'll see 200 million references to the learning pit. So yeah. it caught the zeitgeist somewhere. And yeah. who knows exactly why, but I'm thrilled that it has. Yeah, and we're thrilled to have you. And uh, just a little uh, tidbit about trending in education. I'm known to say things are zeitgeisty. Mm. That's one of, that's been a hook line okay. since we started. So you're in a you're in a, a zone. Of, hopefully, you're not too much in a comfort zone. So I got to shake <laughs> you a little bit so okay. you so you can learn from this. But uh, but it is really interesting. One thing we do also talk frequently about is the emerging awakening around social emotional learning and uh, mm. a lot of what you're describing seems more in line with that, perhaps in a language that is a little more uh, connected mm. and resonant mm. to adolescents and folks mm. maybe early on their learning journey. Can you talk about the the emotional aspect of mm. learning? And, and then also Vygotsky, can't get away uh, from him, but he did talk about the importance of having someone there to help you bridge through these pits, which is sure. in many ways the role of of the good tutor, the great coach, the great teacher. Can you talk about the emotional aspect and the idea mm. of having the support and the guidance of someone like mm. yourself or a teacher? Sure. Well, I think the link to the social and emotional aspects of learning are extremely strong with the learning pit. Mm -hmm. And the learning pit works in every curriculum area. But I think if I had to pick one that it was a perfect hand-in-glove fit, then it would be social and emotional learning because it helps students to wonder, to collaborate, to care about each other more. Mm -hmm. In actual fact, the reason my colleagues in the schools I taught in got very interested in the learning pit was not because I talked about it, not because I shouted about it, 
but because of the impact on students' behaviour and their, their both their intrapersonal as well as their interpersonal relationships. Mm-hmm. And these kids had a lot of challenges going on in their lives, and yet their the behaviour improved in school. They, they supported each other better. There was a much more assurance, self-assurance and group assurance. There was a, a better sense of resilience. Yes, we got better test grades as well, but that's right. not what I was interested in particularly. It was much more about that holistic. And my colleague said, what's this? What's going on? What are you doing? And right. I said, it's about the learning pit. And some colleagues say, they have a tough enough life as it is. What on earth are you trying to make it tougher? And I said, it's a distraction, actually. And it's, it's a wonderful distraction. Okay, so you've got all sorts of things going on out there. Right. But in here, what we're doing is we are getting involved in exploring what Robert Bjork from University of California has called desirable difficulties. Mm -hmm. It's not just difficulties, it's desirable difficulties. I was designing them and it wasn't being by themselves. A a lovely story, I sorry to say again, I was in a pub and off I popped to the bathroom and as I was walking, because this is a very rural pub and so the the gentleman's toilets were out the back, almost behind the bushes in effect. Mm -hmm. And I was walking through the dark and heard this voice saying, hello sir and now i know in many parts of the u.s kids will use the word sir as a mark of respect but we only use it if you're addressing a male teacher that's the only time so ah. i heard hello sir and i'm for mm. oh hell it's one of my ex students here and there was this boy called gary and he was all grown up by that stage so i said come on i'll buy you a pint and we sat and i said what was school like for you gary he said i hated it i says oh why did you hate it he says that learning pit that you taught us about yeah. i spent a flipping life in that pit <laughs> he says the teachers would start talking i'd get all confused and i'd go into the pit and then the teacher would say so moving on then He said, I used to think to myself, what do you mean moving on? Don't leave me here. Mm -hmm. Don't leave me behind. He said, but that's what happened. And I said, so did he hate all of school? He said, no, I loved those lessons where you got us all into the learning pit. And I Mm -hmm. said, you've just said you hated being in the learning pit. He said, no, I hated being in the learning pit by myself. Mm -hmm. But when you got everybody into the learning pit, Mm -hmm. I used to think, Welcome to my world. Let me show you around. Can I make yeah. you a cup of tea? Yeah, yeah, and he yeah. says, and I used to help these, like the brains of Britain, all these kids who would get top grades. Mm-hmm. The moment they hit a mistake, the moment they got something wrong, they crumbled. Whereas for me, that was yeah. my life. And I knew how to deal with it. And I mm-hmm. held their hand and I helped them. And he said, I learned so much from it. And his story then went from there. He left school at the age of 16. Mm-hmm. He started a window cleaning business the very same day. Yeah. And he was 18 years old when uh, I was sat chatting with him. And at that age, he was already employing 42 people in his window cleaning wow. business. Wow, I mean, yeah. Extraordinary. Do you think Gary ever thought, what if I don't get any customers? Mm-hmm. Or what if some of the customers don't pay? Or what if something happens? No, mm-hmm. this boy had developed such resilience, creativity, determination. Yeah. Mm-hmm. But the thing that really chokes me is that he said, do you remember, and I won't 
mention his name just in case but he said his best friend from school now mm -hmm. they were like they joined at the hip almost they were best pals through yeah. the whole of school but they were opposite ends of the success spectrum in grades yeah and this boy he was just the genius of the school and he got to go to oxford university now that's mm -hmm. one of our ivy league of course yeah. and no kid from that town had ever made it to Oxford University. There was a massive fanfare about it. And he lasted one semester mm. before he dropped out. And yeah. I said, oh, I'm gutted to hear that. What happened there? Yeah. And he said he just didn't know how to handle not being the brightest kid yeah. anymore. Yeah, yeah. I said, so what's he doing now? And he says he's a drug addict. Mm. Yeah. And it just spoke so much to me. That boy that I've just mentioned, he was one of the kids who got away because he was one that we all looked at and said, he's brilliant. Yeah. Some people said he's gifted. Mm -hmm. He was rewarded again and again, but he was mm. never really challenged. Yeah. He was never given that sense. He never really had to get into his zone of proximal development. He never had yeah. to right. learn how to. We, I'm sure Carol Dweck's work on sure. growth mindset. Mm -hmm. You know what? Growth mindset does not matter at all unless you're challenged. Mm -hmm. If things are easy, it doesn't matter what mindset you're in because you just right. do it. Mindset only makes a difference when you're facing problems, when you're facing challenges, when mm -hmm. you're struggling with something. Yeah. And this boy had very little opportunity to build a growth mindset because he was almost never challenged. Yeah, yeah. Whereas Gary, who I've been telling you about, of course, can you right. imagine the right. number of times he had that opportunity to practice and rehearse and develop mm -hmm. this social, emotional learning, this yeah. growth mindset, this, yeah. this willingness, this entrepreneurial thinking. It's, yeah. it's remarkable. Right. Yeah, the resilience and uh, grit that is necessary to really thrive in these challenging times is, is an interesting counterpoint to... Mm this notion of fragility that is out there as well, where, you know, folks who are not really challenged or haven't had to overcome things. And that's why I imagine even your, your personal tale, which seems like it is integrated very deeply into the, your training and mm. the fact that, that you left school mm. and yet were able to recover. I do imagine for many students in those, or teenagers in those challenging points in their lives to, to see through your example that there is hope and then to also have the the emotional support of someone who's been there you can almost mm. normalize mm. another expression that's out there these days is getting comfortable being uncomfortable it sounds very much that's found that's foundational to to what you're doing with with the learning pit and just so i understand a little bit better what is the product who is it designed for how do people use it can you maybe give some more practical advice if any of our listeners wanted to yeah. learn more yeah, it's for anybody and everybody, mm -hmm. in a sense. It's a language that we can use. I designed it as a teacher, mm -hmm. and so I imagined it would be useful for teachers. And you can go to uh, literally dozens upon dozens of countries these days and walk into classrooms and see images of the learning pit on the wall. But the Financial Times newspaper, mm. um, you can guess what that writes about over here in the UK, they had an image of the learning pit recently mm -hmm. saying mm -hmm. that we have to learn how to go through the learning pit when we're talking finance, when we're talking economics. I think yeah. 
learning is for everybody. Of course, it's for everybody. Right. The, the famous cellist um, Pablo Casals, at the age of in his nineties, mm. he, he would rehearse every single day. And somebody said, "Why do you rehearse at your age with your expertise?" And he said, "I think I'm getting better." <laughs> and and so I think anybody. Yeah. Even in the 90s, I hope we all get there. Yeah. I hope we all get to our 90s and I hope we all have that same attitude yeah. of, well, I'm making progress. Yeah. I'm learning. And I think it reminds me, and this is totally off at a tangent, but I remember doing this project with a group of high school students. And what we wanted to do was take a photograph of every age between zero and a hundred. So yeah. a photograph of a newborn baby, a photograph of a two-year-old, a three-year-old. And we were gonna make this big display in the school down the corridor, mm -hmm. co corridors of the school all the way through. And of course we had to go to the old folks homes to find the 90-somethings. Yeah. And there was this old dear who was 99 years old. And these teenagers that I was working with, I, I could have kicked them when they said this. They said, aren't you scared of dying? And she turned and without even missing a beat said, I've got more chance of becoming a hundred than you have. <laughs> and just, well, yeah. that's brilliant. And yeah, it's yeah. that sense of humor. Mm. It's that willingness to learn. And so really, Mike, it's a case of, we all ought to be willing to step out of our comfort zone. Yeah. And I think it is so much better when we step out together. Mm -hmm. So as a, you talked about uh, your two-year-old, as a parent, mm -hmm. we should be saying we are in the learning pit with our children. As right. a teacher, as a leader, yeah. you know, I, I, I've led schools, but I also lead a company now. And I need to be said, I'm in the learning pit. We yeah. are in the learning pit together. It's not a case of push somebody in. It's mm -hmm. a about go in with them and right. go in together. And I think that's really important. So yeah, it's about being willing to do this together. Mm -hmm. Yeah. It reminds me another, you mentioned Mandela. Another quote that I use often is uh, Mandela's quote, I never lose, I either win or learn. Yes, and it's, that to me brings me to the, the notion of sports. Mm -hmm. I'm a sports fan. I've played sports. You okay. mentioned coaching. It does seem analogous to that a bit too, like when you're trying to get the most out of your team, you have to challenge them. And, and they're also, the best teams learn that they're in it together and that they will all get further if they're able to help those who are struggling in, in new ways. Does that resonate with you? Can you talk a little bit Absolutely. about connections to sports and those types of For endeavors? Sure. Yeah, I mentioned Carol Dweck earlier on. So she was doing some work with the Scottish Football Association and 54 players who had represented Scotland in international football soccer uh, matches. And she was talking about growth mindset and it developed into a conversation. And it turned out of the 54 players who had made it to the very pinnacle to represent their country, 53 of them had not even been the best players in their own high schools. Mm. What was mm. that all about? Mm. And of course, that was the question. What was that all about? Why? And they, to a person, said the superstars at high school believed they'd already made it. Mm -hmm. They just had to turn up. They just had to turn up with their superior foot. 
Right. They just had to turn up and everybody would applaud. Mm -hmm. But the thing was, they were so used to succeeding, they didn't know what to do when they failed. Whereas we worked harder, we were more determined. Mm -hmm. And actually, when I was writing a book called Challenging Mindset, and as the title suggests, I wanted to challenge people's notions of mindset and challenge the way in which we put growth mindset into our organizations. One thing I found utterly fascinating was that your mindset as a parent Mike doesn't influence your children as much as we thought it would Mm. what will influence them more is your attitude towards failure Mm. because Mm. it's so much more visible than your mindset I hope to be in a growth mindset I try to be in a growth mindset often I'm in a fixed mindset but I try to be in a growth mindset as much as I can but even when I am in a growth mindset my own children I've got three kids they don't know which mindset I'm in, but they can see how I respond to failure. Mm. If you or I respond to failure in terms of that was a stupid thing to do, I should never have done that. I'm never even going to think about doing it again. That's quite likely to put the people you influence, whether that's children or adults, Mm -hmm. is likely to put those people you influence into a fixed mindset Mm -hmm. because it's giving them that idea that failure is the end of the road. There's nowhere you can go from here. Right. You've just got to admit defeat, lick your wounds, go do something else. Whereas if you talk about failure in terms of that didn't work, why did it not work? What can we learn from it? And let's use it as the springboard for mm-hmm. even better actions in the future. Yeah. That's more likely to put people into a growth mindset. So think about sport. I've been lucky enough to work in the USA. And it's fascinating how much emphasis you put on sport. I mean, yeah. You go to a high school across the country and you think mm-hmm. immediately the name of the yeah. teams there it's just you put more money and more emphasis into sport than any other country i work in there yeah. are some crazy sport mad countries like australia new zealand yeah we're pretty hot on it too but nothing like you nothing yeah. at all yeah but what what my question is is if when your teams succeed and they win the tournaments and they smash particularly the local rivals and so on, I bet there's a huge hullabaloo. I bet there's a huge fanfare of excitement. Question is, what happens when they fail? Right. What goes on then? And is it this, I wonder and I worry whether there's this sense of public celebration Mm. and private investigation into failure. Mm-hmm. And so what does that do for the non-athletes or the wannabe athletes, the ones who aren't quite in the team yet? What are they thinking? Are they thinking we dare not fail? And if they're thinking they dare not fail, are they even going to take the risk right. to take the next step up? Mm-hmm. And this is about saying, no, we don't want to fail. Of course we don't want to fail. But sure. you know what? We're going to fail. Right. We're going to fail at yeah. times. Yeah, yeah. And it's how do we deal with it? So as parents, as grandparents, one of the best things we can do for our children is talk to other adults about failure mm. and make sure the children are eavesdropping. Because <laughs> <laughs> if they're eavesdropping, they're going to be listening a whole lot more. Right. And let's talk about I failed and this is what I've done or I think we're failing or we've mm-hmm. just failed. What are we going to do about it? Yeah, and yeah. talk very much about that didn't work so we're being honest Mm -hmm. but then we're saying why did it not work so in other words we're 
um, willing to investigate it. Mm-hmm. We're willing to ask questions. So that didn't work. Why did it not work? What can we learn from it? Mm-hmm. And what are we going to do next to design our way out of this situation? It's really important that we make sure they know failure is a stumbling block, not a dead end. Yeah. It's interesting, as you were speaking to it, made me think of, for some people, and maybe this is if they're in the learning pit and they understand it the right way, failure can be a motivator. Yes. As long as there's enough belief that I can get to the other side. Can you talk a little more about the the motivation element of this? And then we're going to be pivoting towards uh, your views towards the future. We haven't even talked about the pandemic yet, which is good job by us, but we're going to want to get to that as well. But I'd love to maybe get a few notes from you on how motivation relates and how some folks aren't going to get out of the pit because they're either isolated, they're alone, they give up. How do we reach them? How do we think about motivation? Because it seems very foundational to what you're describing here. Yeah. One of the things that I've been thinking about quite a lot and looking into is that motivation comes from success. Hmm. We have to succeed. It's like a bit like a chicken and egg situation, really. You need to be uh, motivated to put the hours and the, the hard work in to succeed. But then the more you succeed, the more motivated you become. Yep. There is, what shall we say, a direct correlation, though, with the success motivation according to how much challenge there was. So if you succeed at an easy thing, that Mm -hmm. does nothing for your motivation. You have to succeed at really challenging things, really Mm -hmm. hard things. Mm -hmm. This is back to what can we do to motivate our students? And there's lots and lots of things. One is we have to design ways for them to be successful, but it must not be success with easy things because that doesn't count. Right. It has to be success with challenging things. So Mm -hmm. what are we going to do to encourage, to, and I love that word encourage. If you look at the etymology of encourage, it comes Mm. from the old French, cur meaning heart. So encourage Mm. to give heart. Mm. We need to give heart to um, people. Now, there's an interesting idea, Greek mythology of the Galatea effect and the Pygmalion effect. And the mm. Pyg- Pygmalion was the sculptor who created Galatea, the statue. And Pygmalion fell in love with this statue and Galatea. And this statue actually came alive. And so we use those terms now. Galatea effect is, I believe I can. Pygmalion effect is, I believe you mm. can. So if we've got a child, or it doesn't have to be a child, it could be an adult, with that sense of that Galatea effect, they're thinking, I can, and I will, and I'm determined to, Mm -hmm. then that's powerful. If you've got teachers or parents or grandparents or managers or leaders who have that Pygmalion effect, I believe you can, Mm -hmm. that's powerful. Mm -hmm. And imagine what happens if you've got both Galatea and Pygmalion at work. Yeah, yeah. So I think there's too many teachers I've heard who say, but those kids don't believe in themselves. Mm -hmm. 
They just don't. Mm -hmm. Okay, so that means that they, the Galatea effect does not exist at the moment with those kids. That doesn't stop you having the Pygmalion effect. That doesn't right. stop you believing in them. Mm -hmm. Act as if you believe always that they're going to succeed. Mm -hmm. So then what happens is the more they do succeed at challenging things, the more likely that Galatea effect is going to come alive. Yeah. And what we want for every single school leaver is them to have that Galatea principle that they think I can do this and I'm mm -hmm. going to do it. Yeah. And to connect to the failure thing, how many people do we know who had a significant failure and have been working their backsides off ever since yes. to prove that they're not a failure? Mm -hmm. Now, you know, probably need years and years of counseling for that as well but <laughs> there is that sense that it's all tied yeah. in isn't it it's a super complex thing yeah human beings are where we're just weird and wonderful creatures and yeah yeah very complex so there isn't one way to do it but all of these factors play an influence yeah and it does bring me to the idea of finding meaning in your life purpose frequently that requires a struggle you have to overcome something to to really create meaning and then if there's a shared struggle you can create shared meaning. Mm. And that's something that I think many of us are facing these days. I would be curious uh, from your perspective, how 2020 has been. In some ways, it seems like your message was resonant prior to the pandemic. And if anything, there's more attention to teaching. There's more concern about losing kids, losing people, maybe folks giving up, losing th that motivation and that sense mm. of purpose. What has this year been like for you and what lessons have you learned leading the learning pit and mm. what you're doing through this very difficult year? The first thing that I learned was when my three kids were sent home from school in March mm -hmm. and didn't go back to school until September. Mm -hmm. They drove me absolutely <laughs> demented. I would rather teach 100 naughty teenagers than my own three children at uh -huh. home. It was an absolute nightmare. Sure. And I'm sure there's parents all around the world saying the same thing. And one thing was, why can't they just get on without being handheld all the time? Why are they all... My eldest, actually, my teenager, she got on brilliantly, but my younger two, mm -hmm. uh, seven and ten, they, it was like they worked for five minutes and then they, my youngest child, my daughter, she just wanted praise. My middle child, my son, he just said, can I go outside for my PE lesson now? Yeah. It was just like, why haven't they learned how to be independent mm. and then people started to get in touch with me a lot of parents in our area got in touch with my wife and me because they know that we're in education and said what do we do and we're, we're saying we're pulling our hair out here as well and it said why haven't they ever learned how to be independent is there too much spoon feeding going on in schools yeah and i think there's far too much in schools far mm. too much in sports clubs far too much at the home far too much carol dweck's work began yeah. as a response against the self-esteem movement in the US where it was right. this overpraise the kids yeah. no matter what they did they're marvelous and brilliant and fabulous it, that it doesn't help and now that's not to say we do the opposite and we criticize them but we've got to teach our children how to be independent how yeah. to think for themselves rather than to be spoon-fed all the time and yeah. so parents were getting in touch with us and then 
teachers were saying, so uh, I'm trying this online learning. It's a nightmare. These kids are all over the place. And, and then they're distracted by the dog. And then the parents come in and start faffing on with something or other. And it's just, it's a nightmare. What are you supposed to do? And why? On, and so many teachers say, if only, if only we'd taken them through the learning pit so many times before this had happened. Yeah. Then they would have much more ability to mm. think for themselves, to question, mm. to wonder, to investigate. And, yeah. and I said, it's like that, that old adage of the very best time uh, to plant a tree was 20 years ago. Yeah. The second best time is today. Right. So, yes, it would have been better to do it before, sure. but yeah. we didn't. Mm -hmm. So let's do it now and let's... So then that comes to the, a, a phrase that uh, one of my colleagues said to me, actually, was that let's not waste this pandemic. This is an opportunity yeah. to think about things. And recently I realized that a number of times in my career, I've said, if we can stop the world turning for a year, I'll get all of these projects finished. Yeah. Uh, so maybe I'm the person it's to blame. Fault. Yeah, it's yeah. my fault that the yeah. world stopped turning for a year. Yeah. But you know what? We have we've made really good use. I I I'd done one webinar in my entire career before yeah. the pandemic, mm -hmm. and it was a, a complete nightmare. I hated every moment of it because I talked at this computer screen, and yeah. the computer screen didn't nod, didn't smile, didn't laugh at my hilarious jokes. There was nothing, <laughs> right. zero. And then, so Carmen said, come on, as soon as this pandemic started, let's get on, let's start yeah. this, let's do some. And I was very hesitant, but I was so grateful because learned so much. And actually, I reckon there's an awful lot that we can do through webinars that you can't do yeah. uh, in normal situations, so mm -hmm. to speak. So I think there's a lot of good, but then I am speaking from a very, shall we say, westernized view I am a, what shall we say, maybe a white collar worker might be a way to use it, or I yeah. certainly work with ideas. So knowledge, I'm able to work. Exactly. Worker, yeah. So I'm able to work online. I don't right. have to turn up to the factory like I used to. I don't right. have to go feed the pigs like I have to. I can go online and I can continue my job. So it's easy for me to say that, but I, yeah. I suppose that we're thinking about teaching. I've been somewhat disappointed that it took a lot of us in education perhaps too long to make good use of online technologies. Yep. And I know there was an equity issue as well because a lot of kids don't have yeah. that, the access to it. But I think there's ways and means that we are able to do it. And I think we've gotten into it now, but it's mm -hmm. taken us a long time. Yeah, yeah. But I have to reflect on that. I mean, we work, we're an international company. We've got six companies in six countries. And it's really interesting, the countries such as the US, such as the UK, that have had to do blended learning, have had to go for this online learning. I think we've made that shift. We've made a shift in our mindset such mm -hmm. that we are prepared to do professional learning online. We're prepared yep. to have meetings online. But if you think about, we've got an office in Australia, and I love Australia. I love the Aussies. I think they've got just... They're as sorted as you can be in terms of their outlook in the world. But you know what? They didn't have much of a lockdown at all. Right. In the state of Victoria, they did, but the rest right. of the country didn't need to. Mm -hmm. And they are still hesitant to do online professional learning. Some leap at it. 
but there's still quite a lot saying, I eh, would rather wait until we can do it in person because they haven't had to make that mental shift yep. because they haven't had to be online as much as we have in, mm-hmm. in our country. So, yeah, I think it's been a useful reset. I you know, I've, as you might imagine, I'm a frequent flyer mm. and I haven't missed that for a <laughs> moment. <laughs> right. And I think the planet has benefited enormously mm. from mm-hmm. fewer flights Right. Fewer face-to-face meetings. I think the planet's gained significantly from that. So there's a lot of good stuff that's come out of it. Yeah. A, a lot of problems, of course. And sure. I don't know, thankfully, I don't know anybody at all in connected in my life who suffered from it. So I am speaking, and I realize I'm speaking from a, a, a vantage point of privilege there. So yeah. I don't want to underplay the pandemic. Right. But I do want to say we found a silver lining to this very dark mm-hmm. cloud that I think has done us the world of good. Yeah, and taking a step back too, it does feel like the discomfort that you find in the learning pit, the zone of proximal development, in many ways, more of us were pushed into mm. conditions that required us to get out of our comfort zones, that is yes. requiring us to develop that resolve and that growth mindset, ideally for those of us who are successfully navigating this and who knows how to define what success is. I think just showing up is a big part of success. Another part of what we'd like to get from you though, before we we wrap up here is any perspective on where you see things headed. So we love to get perspectives from a varied set of folks who care about learning in the future. What do you see on the horizon? What's capturing your imagination? Uh, If you're trying to help our listeners look around the corner a little bit, what do you see on the horizon? And do you have any advice for folks if they want to stay Mm. out ahead of of some of the emerging trends that that we Mm. may see? Yeah, one thing I I ought to caveat it with, and it might come as a little bit of a surprise, bearing in mind what I've said before, but I do have a pessimistic side to me. Mm. And the pessimistic side says, I don't think education will change very much. And I base that on what I've seen in, and what I've read about and what I know from what it was like a century or two ago. We don't move very quickly at all. And there's many reasons. I still have a summer holiday, for a harvest yeah. holiday. How many kids actually, oh yeah, I, I have to spend my six weeks summer holiday collecting in the harvest. Yeah. Come on, how yeah. many kids in the 21st century? But we still have this long summer holiday because it's right. a tradition. Mm-hmm. So there's, we don't move very quickly. But there are signs that things might improve in terms of the obvious one, of course, is maybe after 40 years of talking about technology, maybe, just maybe, we're starting to realise its place, that there is a, a way to communicate in an asynchronous as well as a synchronous way through technologies that can be extremely powerful, that there are ways to give and receive and use feedback that Mm. is better done online than it is face-to-face. So I think that's one thing. And I very much hope two things. One is I very much hope that we will think, what were the kids missing during the pandemic, what would have helped them to navigate it better? And I suspect we'll be thinking about independence, Mm. resilience, Mm. curiosity, ability to be able to learn and explore by yourself, those sorts of things. So what are we going to do about it? And I think the second thing I've seen in some countries, they've 
stopped the national testing, the national assessments. Yep. We haven't here in England yet, but our neighbouring, one of our neighbouring countries, Wales, which is mm. part of the UK, they've declared that there will be no summer exams next summer. Mm. It's extraordinary. Yeah, I'm delighted because I think it will then cause them to think, so how are we going to assess yep. progress mm-hmm of our students without doing national tests. Mm -hmm. And I think you have to get rid of national tests to then create that headspace to work out, so what's the alternative? Because I think far too many people say, I can't think of any alternative, therefore we have to keep them. It's yes, technology, yeah, I can see the point to it face-to-face and it's fine and we've got loads of, and we haven't got the time for technology and stuff. So I love that the country of Wales is saying, and there's others as well that are Mm -hmm. saying, that's it, no national tests next year because it's just not fair. That will then give them that time to innovate and I Mm -hmm. hope, really hope, that people, countries, states will do that and will say, what do we wish we had before this pandemic? Yeah. Let's not waste this pandemic. Let's decide what we should have had before and now let's go and create it. Yes, we should have planted the trees 20 years ago. We didn't. Right. right. So let's plant them today. Yeah. Awesome stuff. And then if folks want to learn more about you, James, and your organization, uh, any recommendations, where should they go? What should they do? Well, so our website is challenginglearning.com. And that'll, that's a good starting point. That tells you about the learning pit. It mm-hmm. tells you about the work that we do. Mm-hmm. Uh, majority of our work is long-term work with school districts and schools where we help them to identify where they want to be in two or three years' time. And we do demonstration lessons. We do coaching. We do leadership work. We do workshops online as well as face-to-face mm-hmm. learning walks. And we help them to get there. And it is making a a really big impact in the places we're working. We also do book studies and Mm -hmm. keynote speeches and all sorts of things. And we've got, as I say, I've mentioned Carmen before. I'm saying it as if uh, everybody knows who she is. But she's Dr. Carmen Bergman, my colleague in the US. She's in central Illinois. We've got uh, colleagues in Australia and Sweden and Norway and the UK, of course. We're an international company and we learn from each other. And I think that's really exciting. So if you want to know anything about us, go to challenginglearning.com or get one of my books. Tenth book came out yesterday. Nice. Absolutely delighted. Congratulations. There you go. Yeah, and also just search for the Learning Pit and there's many happy returns of your search. (laughs) And James Nottingham, a wonderful conversation. I certainly got a lot out of it and getting comfortable uh, being uncomfortable is something I think we're all going to have to get used to. The Learning Pit's out there, challenginglearning.com. And for our listeners, thanks as always for listening. James, thanks again for for joining us. And we'll be back again soon on Trending in Education.